Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. All right, here we are. It's Basic Folk, the podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy Howes. I am the host of this podcast. Happy to have you here. Oh my, it's getting nice outside, but not... I mean, I was walking around the other day and I was like, I wish I had a hat on. So if you're like me and you wish you had a hat on and you want to buy a hat, you can buy one from me. You can buy a basic folk beanie. We have some for sale. You can go to cindyhouse.net find out more about that. You can also sign up for our email list and check out my social media. All right. I'm excited about Cora Feeder. Uh, she comes from a musical family. Her mother is the well-regarded singer-songwriter Rita Hosking, which if you're from the West Coast and are super into folk music, you probably know Rita Hosking. Growing up, Cora was surrounded by music, so it's not a surprise that she naturally gravitated toward performing and singing with her musical mom and dad. Her vacations were spent pretty much going on tour around the West Coast and even in the UK. When she headed off for college, she knew that she wanted to travel while staying in school, getting a degree. So she spent her college years living immersed in places like Thailand and China, studying and observing cultures that are far different from her native Davis, California, which is Northern California. Cora is an incredibly gifted songwriter in that she's able to write about challenging subjects like poverty and gun control with unshakable grace. We talk about the challenges faced with wanting to address global political issues while being fully aware that at 25 years old she does not have answers and is still pretty much learning so much about the world and herself. Her debut full-length album, In Sevens, was just released last year. Really wonderful record. The songs are striking, as uh, is her very interesting phrasing. It's like she's able to like jam all these thoughts and feelings and words in beautifully without sounding rushed or pretentious. Hope you enjoy Cora. She is an exciting up-and-coming talent. I got a chance to see her perform at Folk Alliance, and man... She, like, brought down the house with this song. Um, This is from her album, In Sevens. It's called Automatic Times. And then we'll get to our conversation with Cora Feeder on Basic Folk. There are children in hallways Blood on the floor Adults in power Closing the doors There are crowds in Washington Screaming for more And if you can't hear them Then what are you 
Feeder, thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. Thanks for having me. You grew up in Northern California, in Davis, California, which I actually know somebody from Davis who used to have a radio show called Cool as Folk. His name is Mike. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you know him or not, but um, for those who are not familiar, what is your hometown like? It's a, it's a very liberal college town. I mean, it's it's like an hour from San Francisco, an hour from the beach, a couple hours from Tahoe, but kind of, so there's a lot of access to cool stuff, but it's really just kind of in the middle of some fields. And it's, so it's a flat agriculture college town. And there's, there's tons of cool art going on, but it is a very like white liberal bubble. But I mean, it's a great place to grow up, honestly. That's cool. And when you were growing up, did you did your family take advantage of all of the the cool stuff that was around um, in terms of like vacations? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I, de I definitely had friends who were more into like hiking every weekend in Tahoe and going to all the all the beaches and stuff. And my parents were musicians, so weekends were more like going on mini tours. <laughs> vacations um, were tour. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I definitely was aware that we were close to a bunch of stuff and we went to the bay area a lot which was are nice. you an only child no i have a little sister oh cool does she also play yeah. music she plays her own kind of music it's sort of like electronic i don't even know how to describe it cool. different music different yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome and she's an amazing amazing visual artist too great you come from a musical family like you said your mother's a the well-known singer songwriter rita hosking and your dad is sean feeder a well-accomplished musician um, what do you know of their life before you were born? Like how music brought them together and where else music might be found in your family? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they both had pretty musical upbringings, I think. Um, not, none of their parents actually really are musicians, but my dad was playing guitar from childhood and then um, is, he's the kind of person who can pick up like any instrument, any stringed instrument, and just be better than anyone in the room <laughs> immediately, and it makes everyone angry. Love that guy. <laughs> and impressed, yeah. <laughs> um, and then my mom, my mom comes from a Cornish mining heritage in Northern California. She grew up in the mountains, and um, her great grandparents came over from Cornwall and were a big part of the mining community in California. And they actually were a part of a underground mine choir. What? So there's a lot of, yeah, there's like recordings of them singing carols under underground. It's really Like cool. in the mine? Yeah. Whoa. It was the Cornish, I forget what, it, um, they're in like Nevada City, Grass Valley area. And actually I made, we when I was 15, we went underground in the last working gold mine in California and my parents recorded a live record and I did a little video about it and included some clips of the singing. That's, That's on YouTube. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, she she had a very strong like knowledge that music was in her her background, although didn't play, didn't her parents didn't play much. 
Um, but they both did, I think, in their early 20s. And my, my dad actually was really, really into hand drumming and percussion and actually taught percussion at um, UC Davis and around Northern California for a long time before I was born. Mm. And that sort of brought them together because he was in a few bands and one of his bandmates was roommates with my mom. <laughs> and so they met through that. And then I, for most of my early childhood, the only music in my house really was my dad's drumming and percussion. Wow. So they, yeah, they've gone through a lot of musical transitions from being drum people to being <sighs> folk people. <laughs> You're talking about drum people like having a drum circle? Yeah, totally. Like I, I have yes. memories of sitting like <laughs> with a little like one of those natural fruit roll up things from the co-op, like in the <laughs> middle of a field with my dad in a tie-dye shirt in a circle of people all with drums and like every once in a while you hear his voice come over the drum sound like announcing the pattern change or something you know <laughs> and I'm just like there eating a fruit roll up oh man what a scene yeah That's there's amazing. some there's some really amazing footage of that like VHS how to drum videos like featuring sale feeder um I don't know if they're still for sale but I've found them in our house um uh-huh. like they used to be for sale and they're they're gold your next your next Kickstarter video needs to feature Seriously. some of that. Please. Wow, that sounds amazing. Um yeah. I have never been to a drum circle, but I have been given email invitations to drum circles and that is exactly what I assumed they were like. <laughs> it's very it's very meditative, I think. I mean, I never took part really. I just was cuz he really stopped drumming when I when I turned maybe like 10 or something or younger Mm. um to go into banjo and dobro so based on what you have been talking about just now about eating the uh the organic fruit roll up (laughs) and i also read that your parents were very anti-screen um anti-screen yeah yeah like you had very limited tv in your life yeah i mean they're just they're kind of you know they're hippies so it was we had a tv but it was in their room and it had three channels and we pretty much never watched it. So I always am very interested in the way that on this podcast, getting to talk to people about like certain, certain elements of their life and like TV is one of them because from my experience, like my, both of my parents worked and they would be like, no TV until we come home. But like, that was certainly not the case. You know, I watch TV all the time. So Mm -hmm. I'm so interested in hearing people's experience who did not have that growing up, what your relationship to TV was like as a kid, maybe what it's like now and and how you think that has helped inform you as a person. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely wasn't a thing, but I, I also remember like going to friends' houses and it was sort of like this thing that I thought was really cool and I really wanted. So I was like, it was like a drug, you know, like I would seek it out at friends' houses, be like, maybe we should watch TV, um, <laughs> because it wasn't something that I was going to do at home, or, like, I would go to my grandparents' house, and they would have, like, the Disney Channel, and I was, like, totally awestruck by it. So maybe it backfired in some ways, because I, like, loved it, but couldn't have it. <laughs> um, but I also went to a Waldorf school for K through 8th grade, which doesn't have any screens, so I, it was kind of neither at school nor at home. Mm. And then I I, yeah, I'm definitely the kind of person who doesn't get any movie references or TV references and, like, has seen, you know, 
one twentieth of the movies that most people I know have seen. When did you become interested in music, not just like playing music, but listening to music? Well, I was really listening my whole life, obviously, but I I didn't really realize how cool and powerful like folk kind of music was until I was maybe 15 or so. And because I kind of thought of it as like the thing my parents did, you know, like sort of uncool, but fine. Like mm-hmm. I understood it and I liked it and I loved going to like music festivals and being around jams and you know I was inspired by it without realizing it but um right I remember like a very specific moment actually at the Kate Wolf Music Festival my mom was playing it in Northern California and um Patty Griffin was also playing and I happened to like be in the right place at the right time like I I don't think I would have tried to go to her show but I happened to be backstage and hearing her and I ended up like going and sitting right in front and crying to a few of her songs Mm -hmm. and just being like, oh my God, songwriting is so powerful. And then like suddenly I was like, oh, my mom actually is kind of cool. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And then I like was paying attention from then on, I think. (laughs) That's a good story. Yeah. So it took, it took Patty to get me into my mom. Oh man. (laughs) I found a quote from you about your mom. I was hoping that you could expand on. You said, my mom is always giving me helpful advice. One of the biggest gifts she gave me was to watch her be so talented as a musician and also be my mom. Oh, yeah. So I think what I meant is just, I mean, she's, she doesn't really give me advice in terms of like how to write a song or how to play music. But just watching her go from, she was a school teacher until, until I was about 15 and she quit her job to do music full time. Um, And so without really realizing it I sort of watched a folk career unfold like in my house you know like just but she was also being my loving amazing mom and so I think just knowing that like knowing that just like your mom can become can can make records and they can do great and she can tour and people can love her and she can also just be a regular person kind of demystified the whole idea of making records and being a musician hmm because like people, people are always like, yeah, people are always like, well, how do you like, you know, people don't understand, like, how do you write a song? How do you learn? How do you like start like the whole process of like becoming whatever was just like so normal to me, mm. which I think I really appreciate. And I probably would never have tried to do it if I didn't feel like anyone could do it, you know, really good role model. Yeah. So like you mentioned, your mom was a junior high teacher and then became a full-time musician when you were 15, which that, like, I'm trying to place myself in that scenario at like 15 years old where it's like, okay, music has been like a part-time thing and now she's transitioning to this, you know, full-time musician. What was that like for her and the family what did it mean to you to now have a parent who is a full-time musician? I mean, I don't remember it that well. I mean, I remember it happening. She she was already playing a lot of music and had a couple of records out by the time she quit the teaching. But I remember the fir- for the first year, it was actually kind of just a trial run. It was my eighth grade year of, yeah, it was my eighth grade's year, and she was going to take a year off from teaching and then come back the next year and just, like, see how the year went. And then the year went well and she just kept going. So I remember at first being a little bit nervous for her, like, 
well, are you going to make enough money at this? Or what if people don't like this record? Or, you know, but it quickly became clear that she was doing perfectly fine. And also my dad has a full-time job in organic certification and that was always going to be there too. So I wasn't worried about like losing my house, but, (laughs) um, sounds like you were quite an adult when you were a kid. (laughs) (laughs) I have always kind of been like the quiet, just watching my peers and judging them kind of person, like wishing I was with adults. (laughs) Keeping a spreadsheet of your finances. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When you started playing an instrument, was that the violin? Yeah, I started doing Suzuki violin when I was four or five. Um, And then was in the school orchestra pretty seriously until eighth grade and then kind of got fed up with it and picked up mandolin and guitar and banjo in high school. Yeah, so you said your dad has the ability to pick up any instrument and start playing it. Um, I'm wondering, like, what role did he have in your first learning an instrument? Like, did he help you find each of these instruments that you started playing Mm -hmm. banjo, mandolin? Well, when I played violin, actually, he, he never played violin, but he got a violin that was his size and started learning like the violin two parts to stuff that I was playing father daughter was adorable yeah and it was like the one instrument that I was actually better at (laughs) better than him at um even as a kid which was fun for me um but also cool to have someone to play with a little bit um but yeah he definitely I mean just the fact that all those instruments were sitting around the house because of him I think is why I picked them up you know, I never was like, I want to get a guitar. There just was a guitar on the wall. And mm. so I was noodling around on it. And then he taught me Blackbird. And then sort of from there, I figured out the rest just from listening to him and trying. Um, and then mandolin. I mean, I'm sure he explained, like, mandolin is the same strings as violin. So you can probably do this. But it, it wasn't like he, you know, got me a mandolin. There was just already a mandolin around. Got it. And then is, is he a good mandolin player? No, he's not. I mean, he he can do it, but it's not like his focus at all. What's <laughs> I'm his... sure he could he could solo pretty well. But what's his main instrument? It sort of goes between banjo and dobro. He, like I said before, when he he switched from drums pretty hardcore to banjo for a while, and it was a big deal. Like I I it's was a like, natural progression. I know it makes no sense. <laughs> I one of my friends' dads happened to also switch from drums to banjo at the same time and we would like hold rallies against banjo in our houses. We I had like little signs and like I would I remember just like swinging silks around and being like back to drums. Because it's a pretty like abrasive instrument to just start playing. Yeah. Um I was talking to um I think it was Kaya Cater who mm-hmm. plays a banjo and she was talking about I think her grandfather was a harpsichord player mm-hmm. and he tried to teach her how to play the harpsichord, and she's like, this is too harsh. And then she went <laughs> ahead and picked up the banjo. It's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, I actually, I mean, I ended up picking up banjo, too. So everyone in who remembers me rallying against it were kind mm-hmm. of like, all right, hypocrite, like, look at you now. <laughs> there are still people in Davis who, whenever I pick up a banjo, they're like, no, banjo, like referring to my Oh, I love that. Let's, let's throw back. Let's have a throwback to embarrassing childhood moments. Always. Love it. Maybe that's why I live on the East Coast. (laughs) Okay, Cora, high school was not that long ago. 
yeah. uh, in the grand scheme of things. And sometimes I like to think about, like when I'm thinking about questions to ask people, like think about it in terms of like my experience, which I think is what every human being does. But when I was, when I was your age, I like had a really hard time like reflecting on high school and just hated it so much. But um, what was that like for you and how do you reflect on that now? High school was pretty much the worst period of my life thus far, I think, mm. as it is for most people. I was really, I, I had to leave Waldorf, this kind of artsy school in eighth grade and go into public high school and like immediately just like hated everyone and hated being in a boxed room and having to go to a different room when I heard a bell and like just the whole like structure of it really pissed me off. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, so I actually found there's this school for independent study in Davis, which kind of saved me and I was able to meet with a teacher once a week and basically homeschool myself but I would still go into high school for every day for science and like Spanish and I was really into theater so it was not a fun time I was just very like self-loathing and and didn't like I no one in my in my classes or in theater anyone knew that I like played music or anything it was all very kind of like a home thing Mm -hmm. that I did tons of and actually I think the reason that I can play guitar now is because I spent so much time just at home alone with the guitar mm. when everybody else was out doing things, um, teaching myself and writing and stuff. So it was, yeah, looking back, like, I think it, it, it's what had to happen and it's fine. And I got out of it and I'm a lot happier now. Mm-hmm. And, but it was definitely a classic, like, yeah, unhappy period. Can you talk a little bit more about your involvement with musical theater and maybe in general, like how music helped in high school? I loved doing theater in grade school. Um, so I so I thought, well, that's like the thing to do, I guess. That's the fun thing. So I And I had been to high school productions. The Davis Senior High School has a really good theater program or, or had one. And I had been to some amazing shows and wanted to be a part of them. So I... I remember auditioning for Rent, which was like one of the bravest things I've ever done, I think, because I like, didn't know didn't know anyone and you had to like dance on this huge stage and sing in front of people and I just sort of like didn't even know the auditions were happening, but saw them posted on a bulletin like the day they were happening and was like, Oh my god, I have to go. This is my chance and I just somehow like got the will to go. And everyone was wearing like their yoga pants and their dance shoes and they're like in jazz choir and in all these fancy things and I was like wearing converse <laughs> and jeans and they like have a their, their leotards and their top hats on <laughs> totally totally it was like I just st- I, I stuck out like a sore thumb for sure or oh. at least I felt like it but I did it and I got a role as a homeless person in rent <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and a bunch of people that I knew to be, like, cool and in theater didn't get in. So it was a big, like, morale booster of, like, all right, I can I can hold a harmony and I can, I can dance in the back. But then I ended up going into technical theater pretty fast mm-hmm. um, and becoming the lighting director and getting really close to the stagecraft people and really enjoying that side of things. Even though I, I, I kind of wanted to be on stage, I just was, like, too embarrassed and like not ready Mm. to do that 
and yeah, like I said, my all of my music and performing was happening at home and kind of brewing during that time, but it definitely didn't come out mm. at high school. It's interesting to see how your desire to be on stage evolved yeah. uh, into a singer-songwriter. And I'm also curious about how you feel about your lighting at shows. <laughs> I definitely complain about it in my head pretty often, <laughs> but I try not to bring it out. Yeah. Yeah. Lighting is really cool. It makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I definitely go to, whenever I go to any kind of theater, that's what I'm thinking about. Let's talk about when you were first starting to play with your parents when you were 15. You were kind of like their side player. What was that like for you? Were you excited to play with them? Did you have to deal with any stage fright? Yeah, so I started, we did a a UK tour when I was 15. A lot of things happened when I was 15, I guess. Um, (laughs) Formative age. (laughs) Yeah. We went to the UK and I brought my violin and I played a Shogun Farewell at a bunch of the shows and my parents would like strum along and then I would sing um, harmony vocals on a few songs. And then from there I started playing banjo with them more and my mom and I wrote a song together where I my banjo part was sort of important so that became a thing and it was it was fun it was nice like to have no pressure to talk or like have to really Mm. lead anything on stage but just sort of they'd introduce me like this is our daughter and everyone like loved that I was their daughter so I I was immediately loved you know and (laughs) There was, I had to do no work, and then I would just do a little bit of strumming and get off and, like, be the star of the show. <laughs> um, it was fun. I mean, it it was it made touring with them a lot more fun just to kind of get to be part of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and I still, whenever I visit home, if they're playing a show, I try to go and sit in just because it's, it's, so, it's, like, so much easier than leading your own thing mm. and just fun in its own way to just sort of like be it be part of the team they really they they kind of like eased you into that stage life yeah and they, I mean they didn't push me into it at all I think I remember in terms of the singing stuff like they they were singing they were working on a harmony part in the car once and I just started singing third part harmony to them and they're like oh do you want to do that tonight and I was like uh sure I guess. But they never like asked me to do it or expected me to do it, I think. College. I have so many questions about your college experience because it sounds crazy. At first you went to UC Santa Cruz, but you were not digging the California college scene. Yeah. And you wanted to travel but stay in school. And then, okay, this is where I kind of don't understand. Can you tell me how you found this Quaker school, Long Island University? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm still actually unsure how I found it. Um, I think there was this girl who I vaguely grew up with who went to the same grade school as me a few years ahead of me who went there, and I think I must have, like, stumbled upon Facebook photos of her in cool places and been like, where did she go to school? And then figured it out. But I know that I, I wanted to study abroad, and so I could have also just Googled study abroad schools and maybe found it. But... Yeah, it's it's not Quaker anymore, but it did start about 50 years ago as a little tiny Quaker school that sent people all over the world with journals. One guy literally ended up in 
prison in India and kept journaling and like got his certificate from global college. He was a prisoner or he just was... He ended up, I don't know what he did or how he got there, but he spent some time, I think, for doing something, I don't know, in, in, as a prisoner in India. Wow. And still got back to the States and got his, it wasn't, it wasn't a certified, like, education oh, um, it was a program at that point. But, Quaker education. Yeah. All right. But it's, it started in roots like that, just kind of like weird people traveling by themselves, journaling, and then coming back and talking about it together. And then... Now it's an accredited university that mm-hmm. you get to go to. They have different campuses around the world, and you get to spend basically each semester on a different campus. So many more questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your degree is in global studies. Yeah. And the focus is on songwriting as empowerment in indigenous and migrant communities. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, so that, well, that was my thesis. That was like my senior year focus. So basically, yeah, everyone gets a global studies degree. And I, you, I, most people start in Costa Rica, but I, because I went to Santa Cruz, I kind of jumped in at a weird time and went straight to China. So I spent four months living in Hangzhou, China. And then I did um, some time in Taiwan, India, and Thailand, which was super formative. Um, it was a comparative religion and culture program. And then I went to Italy for four months and Bosnia and Herzegovina. And then I, for my senior year, you kind of pick a place and you get an internship um, and you do a big independent case study. So I ended up back in Thailand working for this arts organization called GABFI that does mostly theater workshops with indigenous and migrant youth in the region. Um, and then and they go in and they teach arts and theater and stuff, and then they also teach kids about how to um, get back into Thailand if they get kicked out, and um, how to get citizenship, and how to not get pulled into the trafficking rings that are constantly trying to pull kids into them. If you're born indigenous in Thailand, you're not granted citizenship, and then there are tons of people fleeing horrible things from other countries around there. So mm-hmm. there's there's just like tons of displaced people in northern Thailand. So I was going around with this organization, and they realized that I was a songwriter, so I ended up teaching songwriting workshops. Um, with kids? With kids, yeah, with translators and with kids. It was such a weird time. Like, I I was living in Chiang Mai, but I would get a call, like, the night before we were going to go, and someone would come, like, at 7 a.m. with a flatbed truck, and I would, like, get into the flatbed truck with my guitar and get taken to the airport, and we would fly to some, like, unknown place, in in like the north or close to Lao or somewhere and get off and like get in a van and go to some small village and they'd be like at the last minute like oh there's a lot of malaria here like make sure to put some repellent on and and then we'd like get there and there'd be all these kids who don't speak English and I'd have like my translator and we'd have to write a song in an hour and then perform it for the village and like talk about what it meant (laughs) it was such a like all hands on deck what the hell am I doing? Here we go. Oh my God. You cannot see my face right now, but wow. (laughs) Uh, It was crazy. Yeah. And then I, so then I wrote about that and then, um, turned that into a thesis. So how many times did you do this? And like, what would the children want to write about? We did it about six or seven times, um, where I was actually teaching writing workshops. Is it the same kids that you're with? No, it was different kids every time. 
And then we, we brought a bunch of them all together at the end of the time that I was there to go to Thai PBS and do a, a big show on Thai PBS. But, um, no, it was, it was different kids each time who often spoke different languages than the last one, the last ones. And it, it also the rage, ages ranged from five to 18. And luckily I had the same translator most of the time, sometimes because she, she spoke Thai. And so sometimes they wouldn't speak Thai. And so they would have their own translator so it was going through two levels of language translation. Wow. So we would, we would, I mean, I, I tried not to have them write anything specific. And sometimes the organization would be like, we want you to write about like their situation because of this political thing so that we can bring it to PBS kind of thing. So we had a couple oh. times where. Like there was we an were, agenda. Right. There a little bit of an agenda, but usually it was just kind of whatever they wanted to write about. And it's more about the process. And so they would. I would try to explain like, like phrasing and like just general like rhyming and try to get them to have like four lines that, you know, had ABAB rhyming. And then they would, they would do it with the translator and then they would sing it for me and I would like try to find ways to change it a little bit and at, and it was so, it was so complicated, (laughs) but we ended up with, with songs about like, all sorts of things, everything from like metaphors about like I'm a tra- trapped bird in a cage and I just want to fly, to like empowerment. It was it was always very positive stuff. It was like hmm. everything's gonna be okay. Um, I just want you know I just want to tell people that freedom will come. Like very, I always expected it to be like kid stuff, you know, like let's write about this game or whatever. And it was always like very astute. Yeah. powerful messages it was, it was really intense and actually one of the one of the groups did speak pretty good english on the myanmar border because there's more english in myanmar so they we actually got to write a song in english together that was really powerful and probably one of the better songs just lyric wise hmm. because i was able to guide it more right but it was really more about the process and get, kind of empowering them to be able to make up a tune and put words to it and then like I said also we were, we were there really to teach them about issues that they could change in their community so whether or not they could come out writing a song wasn't really the the goal but it was right. nice if we got a song out of it I'd be interested to know like how that affected those kids yeah so the the organization still goes back to these kids like the same groups of kids and works with them continuously so it definitely was weird like I for me to just leave it felt very like white saviory and Mm. really it was a complicated thing for me to process when I got back um actually one of the songs on the record the new record um child on the move is about everything from that song is about stuff that kids told me or told translators and then the next song diamonds in the trees is about like me coming home and being like did I ever do you any good like what why was I there kind of Mm. thing there's this great line in your bio that says you are part of a new generation of songwriters up to the task of confronting the times we live in um, which (laughs) to me seems very brave and listening to your stories about traveling around the world and being in danger of malaria but also like not running away from your feelings um, it seems very brave Uh, I'm wondering 
how you feel about that. Have you always felt compelled to write songs that are like leaning in or looking outward at the world around you? Well, I definitely like a song to impact some someone, like impact a listener in a way that they're not expecting it and like kind of teach them something even if it's not you know, in a very obvious way. And I, but I, I don't, I never really went into songwriting being like, I'm gonna write about all these important issues and reflect the, you know, issues of today and whatever. It just sort of, I write about what I'm thinking about. And because of this global studies degree, I think I just was thinking about global issues and all these horrible things that I was studying. And so then that's kind of what came out in writing and now actually I'm writing a lot less about that kind of thing which is sort of weird for me um Mm. to like accept that I can just write like love songs and they don't have to be about the world but I I, I'm still of course always going to be doing that because I do think about the news and issues and all sorts of things all the time and what I'm thinking about comes out in Mm. what I'm writing but yeah I think a, a lot of that comes from the college years and all the stuff I was studying Mm. and just that coming out in song and then getting back to the States and being like, all right, well, I was, I was kind of taught to go to, go to a place, learn about the culture, try to like understand stuff from local perspectives and then write about it. And so now I'm like trying to do that in the States. So I got back to the States and immediately wrote like songs about gun violence and all these things that kind of as if I had come here as a study abroad student. You're at that point in your life. You're 24. I just turned 25. Happy birthday! It was in December, but it feels like it was just... (laughs) Happy belated birthday! Uh, 25, such a magical age. Um, I hated my 20s so much. Uh, (laughs) And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that there are more questions than answers about how life is going to go. Totally. You might be experiencing uncertainty a lot in your life right now. What is your relationship to uncertainty and how do you handle it? Not great. I mean, I mean, I think I've, I've spent the last, I mean, all of college was pretty uncertain. It was pretty like throw yourself into a place and see what happens. But it was still under the structure of like, this is for a semester. And then at the end of this, I'll get a degree kind of thing. And now, yeah, you're right, it's much more like, here I am, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm very much like a Capricorn. I like my Google calendars Mm. color-coded and my spreadsheets perfect, you know. So (laughs) it's definitely, it's a weird time. I'm, yeah, I don't, I don't take uncertainty that great. I mean, I kind of thrive on it. Like, I don't want too much. I don't want a full-time desk job. I don't want to, like any kind of schedule that lasts too long, but I also want to know what's coming. So. Right. The thing that annoyed me about my 20s is that, and I don't know if you can relate to this at all, but like professionally, I was like, yes, I'm nailing it. And then like personally, I was like, I am failing and this is terrible. And that was like where most of my energy and attention went to. And it just, it, I, I'm so annoyed with myself at this point mm. yeah. in my life that, that like I spent so much time and energy on that. Um, and you, you seem like you've accomplished so many incredible things at this point in your life. And now you're, you're kind of just like, 
you know, what do I <laughs> just what do I do now? Yeah. Am I gonna get married? <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> no. Um yeah, totally. I mean that's yeah, you've pretty much nailed the last couple <laughs> years of my life. <laughs> yeah. It I sucks. I moved straight to I mean it's been good and I released a record and that's been exciting, but yeah, once once in sevens came out, like that had been sort of like my end all like goal to release this record and like it was this whole fundraising thing for a year and the recording and everything and once it was out like I had it was like people talk about like after you have a baby like you get depressed it was like oh my god the thing like the the next like it was like finishing a semester or like finishing a degree it was like well that's out Hmm. nothing's left Right, I yeah. I guess I should just retire now. <laughs> I should just move into a quit, hut somewhere. Well, I'm ahead. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's uh, it's it's hard to, like, remind yourself when you're focused on such a big thing that, like, there's going to be something that happens after this, you know? Like, nothing lasts forever, which is, like, good and bad to think about. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about your voice. <laughs> so let's pivot. Your voice is really cool. Thank you. Yeah, and your phrasing is like fantastic. It's it's more like you're having a conversation with someone and you're like throwing in some extra words here and there. And I mm-hmm. found this really great quote about your voice that explains what I'm talking about. It says, Feeder manages to fit a novel worth of lyrics into a four minute song without it sounding crowded or pretentious. <laughs> Can you talk about the evolution of your phrasing and when did you start writing songs like that interesting yeah I do like to pack as much as I can in and it's been I've been trying to like try not doing that and see if I can write like simpler songs and then I just second guess everything I'm doing because I'm like well if I'm not packing in stuff is it really worth it is it it really a song yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's really me um it's my thing (laughs) <laughs> no, actually, a lot of my songs aren't as packed as I think the ones that they were talking about in that quote. But I'm really inspired by, like, Paul Simon, the way that he, like, Graceland is just basically, like, a bunch of fast talking mm. over a bunch of cool sounds, you know? So I really, I I don't know, I just like the sound of that. Or, like, recently I realized that Leaf Volabeck kind of does that. He mm. actually, he was on your podcast, huh? Like, he... He's sort of like he's just really good at at like expressing himself. He's sort of like those exercises where you just start writing whatever you're feeling and then just like let it out and and then start singing it. I don't know where I'm going with this, but there are <laughs> people that I think do it like way better than I do. Do you um, um do you, uh Josh Ritter also does that and I think to his detriment because then he's like, "Oh, then I have to sing them live." Right? <laughs> <laughs> No, but I actually, I don't really use the method of just writing whatever I'm feeling. It's very, very crafted and like, I'm a very slow writer. So I definitely, I'll start with a bunch of just kind of word vomit, but quickly tie it together. And I don't like, I won't even finish a song if I don't feel like it's working. But I don't really know where where that comes from, to be honest. I think I just have a lot to say and want it to fit into three minutes so i have to find a way to pack it in it's working thank you (laughs) welcome all right cora (laughs) we're going to do something 
that you may or may not be familiar with or comfortable with, but it is called the lightning round. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Cora Feeder. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Blackbird. Do you prefer Batman or Superman? I don't even really know the difference, to be honest. I love it. <laughs> Do you like lakes or beaches better? Uh, what about beaches on a lake? Whoa. It, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I have a strong connection to the Great Lakes, so I will say lakes, but I also love ocean beaches, so that's a hard question. Mm, that's what I'm here for. The hard questions. <laughs> All right, Cora, what is your karaoke song? Oh, my God. Um, probably anything Taylor Swift. Mm. Uh, is country Taylor Swift or pop Taylor Swift? Either or. Okay. Interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs or cats? Yeah. Do you like dogs or cats? Oh, I thought you said Dr. Cats. Oh, Dr. Um, cats. Dog- <laughs> Uh, my instinct is to say dogs, but I actually, like, my closest relationship to an animal has been with a cat, so. Oh, do you want to tell me about that cat? <laughs> uh, it was, it was my childhood cat. His name was Fergus Fox Feeder the First, oh. and he was a big orange tabby, and he was the love of my life. Is he still with us? No, he passed away a few years ago. Oh, so sad. But he had a, he had a glorious life, so it's okay. Wonderful. What is your coffee order? Uh, I love a cappuccino, but any just anything with cream and no sugar. Favorite U.S. city? Oh my gosh. Uh, well, I love New York City. I lived there for two and a half years, but not right now. Maybe, like, I used to love it, and I think I'll love it in the future, but I'm kind of done with it for now. Mm. It's hard. That's a hard city. Yeah. Uh, first album you bought with your own money? Probably... Probably Crooked Still at the Strawberry Music Festival. Ooh. Yeah. That's cool. Um, first concert? Um, my mom did a show when I was in utero. Um, she <laughs> was a, a drummer in her friend's band, and I they made a live record, and I was there. Wow. <laughs> uh, dream collaboration? Uh, Paul Simon. <laughs> Flying or Invisibility? Can you fly really fast or just fly? It's up to you, Cora. All right. I'm going to go invisibility, actually. Wow. Okay. Interesting. All right. Final question. What is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Probably Lijiang, China or Northern Ontario. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like the juxtaposition. All right. Cora Feeder, you did very well. On the lightning round. A little round Thank of applause you. for you. I feel like I gave a lot of mi- like middle questions, like both, but here's why. <laughs> but it's all right. <laughs> Listen, as long as you explain yourself, that's all I care about. <laughs> we just want to get to know you, the real you. Thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. This is a lot of fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun for me, too. Cora Feeder, the album In Sevens is out now. Basic Folk is produced by Adam Corey this week and Laura McCarthy, another wonderful producer on Basic Folk. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople 
does the music for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Buy a beanie. Go to the website. I say this like over and over and over again. I sound like a broken record. I should find new things to say. Um, You can find out more about me at my website, which I mentioned already, but I'll mention it again, cindyhouse.net. Oh, also, if you're listening this far, and uh, I just got back from going on a really exciting trip of a lifetime with and met some new friends on an island off the coast of Belize who said they were going to listen to the podcast and write really funny reviews. So hello to Brooke and hello to Claudia. Thank you all. Good night. Okay. Bye.